This episode of Probably Science is brought to you by the Curiosity Box by Vsauce, a quarterly box full of awesome science mystery goodies for you or the science aficionado in your life. Just visit curiositybox.com slash probably science to order, and a portion of the proceeds go to support Alzheimer's research. Probably Science. Hey everyone, welcome to the last Probably Science Before Christmas. The holidays. Sorry, yeah. Before Hanukkah. I don't even know what Hanukkah is this year, but we still say... It's, it's actually... Did it happen? No, it's actually almost exactly coincides with Christmas this year. Oh, okay. okay I think so the first day is Christmas Eve. I think there's almost a condescension to saying... I'm not one of the... Uh, I don't care about the war on Christmas, but like... Uh, when we say just happy holidays as if like all of them so then that makes Christians sort of come to think that Hanukkah must be as important in Judaism as Christmas is in Christianity which it isn't at all right it's a third tier or it, it, no yeah it's definitely it's definitely not one of the biggies except for the fact that it coincides with Christmas but then Christmas wasn't one of the biggies until years later just like, because Chris, of the Christmas the... Christmas has recent in relatively recent years become the biggie for Christianity where Easter used to be yeah or? and it, like okay. And obviously, the fact that Christmas even happens this right. time is solstice and uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I don't. Yeah, I, I remember growing up at you know as a, as a Jew, albeit a pretty secular one. Uh, we'd still we still go to like the mall and see Father Holiday or see Parent Holidays. <laughs> Wait, see, par- yeah, Parent Holidays. That's the that's the guy the Jewish mall person whose lap you sit on. Well, it's just you know just a secular. A secular holiday character of indeterminate gender. <laughs> Parent holidays. Yeah. Parent or guardian holidays. Parent or guardian holidays. Is there facial Responsible hair? Responsible adult holidays. Does parent holidays have like like just a hint of facial hair that's not, not gender specific or what's the... Well, it uh, wears a coat or, or vest of any vest. color. <laughs> a, a non... A loose-fitting sweater. A loose... Uh, responsible adult holidays just wears whatever item of clothing they feel comfortable on. I really want to see some fan art of what responsible guardian holiday is. What are we, what's our decided upon nomenclature for I this? Think responsible adult holidays. Responsible adult holidays. I want to. I want to see a whole like mythos developed around this. I want someone to put out like an Elf on the Shelf style book that's going to doing this because we hate Christmas. Yeah. By the way, I can't believe Elf on the Shelf has actually taken off. Like, who would have thought you Apparently could still? Apparently, has now made its way to the UK. Like I can't believe you can you can just introduce a new holiday thing and have it catch like in maybe in a hundred years that's going to be as ubiquitous and like because I didn't realize how recent Rudolph just... was you know Rudolph was an invention in the last what I don't know seventy years probably and then yeah because Rudolph came from the song the the reindeer would predate it right I guess oh man this is getting way off this has nothing to do with fact <laughs> this is... the holidays are coming up we're gonna eat a lot is that a good Way to lead into this week's episode. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you know what Father Christmas is? He's is he rotund. Fat? Oh, yes, yes. He's uh, he's corpulent. He or she is parent Christmas. Responsible adult holidays. Is corpulent. And uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. And we don't always understand corpulence as much as we think we do. But our, our guest, our special guest today... A special guest in this episode. Dr. Sylvia Terra. Sylvia Terra, PhD, author of The Secret Life of Fat, The Science Behind the Body's Least Understood Organ and What It Means for You, is joining us via 
Skype or phone or one of those things in just a few minutes. And this book comes out on December 27th, so just in time for you to start off the new year and uh, and and tackle all those resolutions you're about to make with some actual science behind you. If you visit thesecretlifeoffat.com, you can order the book. And we just finished reading it. It's really interesting. And there's a ton that I didn't know about the biology of fat and the various uh, things that it, it does for us uh, that are bad and good and, and misconceptions about it as an organ and as a as a molecule. Have a listen. So, hi, Sylvia Tara. How's it going? Good. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We just um, we just finished your book, The Secret Life of Fat, and uh, it was great. We want to recommend it to our, our listeners to get uh, their last-minute holiday shopping in. Um, so, what inspired you to write this? Oh, boy. So, I always had trouble with my own fat, honestly. I've always gained fat much easier than people around me, even as a child, and I, I kept my fat pretty much in line through my 20s, but I had to work very hard. I had to eat very little. I had to exercise. I had to work harder at it than most people did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after a while with a career, kids, you know, fat started packing on, and my old tricks weren't working anymore. I wasn't losing it quickly. And I would go on a number of diets. They'd work for a while. Um, sometimes I could even gain weight on a diet, amazingly enough. All the time, people around me were losing weight on diets very quickly. Mm-hmm. I got really fed up with this, and I finally said, you know, I'm not going on one more diet. Someone else designed until I understand everything there is to know about fat, particularly my fat, which seemed very stubborn. And so I spent five years uh, digging through the scientific literature. I'm a biochemist by training, so I had the tools to really dig in. And I spoke to dozens of researchers around the world about their cutting-edge research on fat. And what I found out was just so surprising, really was shocking to me that I thought I have to write this in a book. And The Secret Life of Fat is that book. So well, so let's, let's get into it. So from, from a biochemical point of view, what, what even is fat? Yep, so fat, what we know it as is a reserve of calories, so something that holds extra energy so it's there when we need it, and so many of us have too much. But what we typically think is we have to get rid of as much fat as we possibly can, and the less fat you have, the better off you are. And that's not actually true. So fat does hold a reserve of calories, but that's not all it does. In fact, one of its very important roles is as an endocrine organ in your body, meaning that it makes hormones uniquely makes hormones and distributes that to your body and your body depends on these a great deal so when we try to lose fat we might want to lose it but our bodies really don't they want fat to stay there and do its function for example fat strengthens the immune system some of our t-cells have receptor for one of fat's hormones leptin very important hormone that fat makes fat strengthens our bones fat even affects our reproduction you can't initiate puberty without healthy fat and, and it's leptin as well Fat's even linked to brain size. Mice that are deficient in leptin have smaller brains, and yet when you inject leptin back into them, their brains start to grow. So it's really quite remarkable the power fat has in your body. So, so when, you, and, when you talk about bones as well, that was one of the things in the book. So bo- both bone cells and fat cells come from the s- same stem cells, is that right? That's right. That's really pretty amazing. So in some way, they have this you know, secret history together and kind of understand each other. So, you know... Fat actually, you know, fortifies bone. Bone, bone actually fortifies fat. So, bone actually releases a hormone also that uh, helps promote insulin, which then helps create fat. And so, it's a very interesting two-way axis. Um, so, what happens to the hormone uh, balance in your body if you do lose too much fat, oh, particularly if you well, lose it too you- quickly? Sure. I mean, you have to lose a lot of it before you really become, you know, leptin deficient. But one thing that is interesting is that fat is, leptin in particular, that uh, is made by fat, 
is related to satiation and it's related to metabolism. So when we diet and we lose fat, say 10% of our fat, our appetite actually gets much bigger because we have less leptin now and it's not there to satiate, just a signal satiation. Our metabolism goes down, you know, quite significantly. And so we're burning less fat. And in this way, it's your body's way of protecting its fat, of wanting it to stay. It wants you to be hungrier. It doesn't want you to burn off as much. It's trying to protect it. So that's one of the things that, you know, it's, it's really quite profound because it has a lot of a, a significance for dieters. A lot of dieters regain their weight after just about a year. And this is why you see people yo-yo diet. You hear them be frustrated on their diet. Your body and even your mind is really you know, programmed to regain that fat and hold on to it. And unless you really understand that, how your fat's working, why you're feeling hungry, why you don't have satiation, it's hard to maintain on a diet. So in this case, knowledge really is power because there's so many diets out there. They're like siren songs. Mm-hmm. They'll say, oh, you know, buy my book and lose 10 pounds or, you know, just eat these whole grains and all this fat will melt off and you'll never be hungry. And they make for great selling of diet books, but they don't really address what losing fat is like biochemically. So, you know, the science of fat, understanding it at that level, and then also just the knowledge aspect of it is really helpful. And I know I've lost 30 pounds and kept it off thanks to the research that I did. Oh, wow. And even my, yeah, my editor, after he read my book, when I gave him my manuscript, he lost 15 pounds just from having the knowledge about what fat was doing. So you, you heard it here, listeners, if you buy the book, we, <laughs> we guarantee by the end you will have lost... Um, you, you mentioned the, the appetite um, changes that come along with losing weight, and there's a gender difference you discuss. It's sort of unfair when it comes to what work, working out does, right, as far as appetite. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's... So yeah, women and men interact differently with their fat, if you will. So women, when they're energy deficient, they reach for fat pretty readily. They'll use fat. But what their bodies also do is they store, it stores fat very readily as well. So men will often, their bodies will reach for glycogen faster, not, not necessarily fat. And so women, they, they, you know, after a long sleep or after a long fast or even exercise, they'll actually start to use their fat. Now, one of the downsides is that women seem to respond, they seem to overcompensate after exercise. So women, after they exercise, they release more ghrelin, another hormone from the stomach, than men do. And ghrelin causes hunger. And so when women burn off, say, 600 calories, which is a really good, strong workout, their ghrelin levels are higher. And even after they eat, they remain higher. So I think they're about 33% higher after a workout, and after they eat, they're about 20 25% still elevated. So they just get very hungry after a workout. And so nature really, in a way, protects its fat even more so in women. It wants them to put that, that energy back in. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the difference between women uh, and men. And that's even true, like you say, like um, in uh, f- male-to-female transgender people who've, had the hor- who've started to undergo transitioning and the hormone treatment, they're the way their body interacts with fat changes as they transition, right? That's right. So they really distribute fat differently. Um, that's what I talk about there. And that's really interesting to see how much our hormones affect our bodies. So say when a man you know, is going to you know, transitioning to be a woman, he's taking estrogen and testosterone blockers. Now, testosterone is, is usually a fat burner. It's a great fat burner, as a matter of fact. So when those people block that and they add estrogen, they start to gain weight overall and will gain weight in more feminine distribution, if you will, so around the buttocks, the thighs, the hips, uh, lower abdomen. Um, and then the opposite happens. So when you have a man or actually a woman turning into a man taking testosterone, again, they'll lose fat overall, and but they'll gain some in the belly. So that's that's the distribution of testosterone versus estrogen in male-female. And that's really interesting. Does that also uh, create differences in the long term? Because isn't it worse to have... Um 
like male typically male distributions of fat are are worse long-term health-wise right is that the difference in like subcutaneous versus visceral fat or just where yeah so there's all kinds of fat in your body and i write about this in the secret life of fat too so there's subcutaneous fat and that's white fat that's right underneath your skin and then there's visceral fat which is that fat that's underneath your stomach wall and nestled against your internal organs and that's the fat that's really dangerous men do have more of a tendency to have visceral fat than women do so as women gain weight and men gain weight, especially with age, women will probably deposit in their subcutaneous areas a little bit more. Men get it in their gut, and it is less healthy. In fact, I have a quote from one of the doctors I interviewed in my book saying, you know, he tells his male patients that, hey, as you age, when you both gain weight, she's probably going to be a little better off than you are. So men have to do more to really watch their, their dangerous fat. Could, could mm-hmm. that be one of the things responsible for the difference in life expectancy between men and women? I'm sure it is if it's, un, if it's uncorrected, right, if it's not corrected in any way. But, you know, there are ways to correct for it. And I tell a really interesting story of sumo wrestlers, right, because sumo wrestlers are absolutely obese, 300 to 400 pounds, and yet they don't have a lot of visceral fat. And one thing is fat releases another hormone called adiponectin that's key for keeping our blood clean. So adiponectin will clear triglycerides and fats and cholesterol out of our blood and deposit it into subcutaneous fat tissue, a healthier you know, fat tissue. It, mm-hmm. It's fat's own way of guiding fat in the blood to like come home, selling it to come home where it belongs, you know, if you want to give fat a personality like that. And so sumos exercise six to seven hours a day. And exercise promotes adiponectin release from fat. So even though they're eating a lot and they're very heavy, this exercise keeps them healthy. When they do CT scans of their midsections of sumo wrestlers, they actually don't have very much visceral fat, and they're surprisingly metabolically healthy. So there's, there's a lot that people can do um, you know, with age and with hormones, their fat will distribute in the ways that it does. But you know, with exercise and other you know, dieting techniques, you really can get that under control. So that's really interesting to know, like uh, size and health are not necessarily correlated. Well, you know, it's always best not to be severely overweight. But even if you are, you can be fit but fat. And there are people like that. And some of it's attributed to the adiponectin, their exercise. And even now we're seeing some mixed results on dementia linked to fatness. I think there's been some studies in the past that show, you know, people who are heavy have a, a higher risk of dementia. And then a study just came out recently showing people who had obesity had a lower risk of dementia. Hmm. And I think what, what they're detecting, it doesn't say this explicitly in the article, but it's probably the amount of visceral fat. So regular obesity, if fat is stored in healthier places like subcutaneous fat tissue, it's probably a better, I mean, of course it's better, but you, know, you might even be able to stay a little healthier than if you have it in your visceral area, your stomach fat. Is there an easy way for people to get tested to see what the proportion of visceral to subcutaneous is, or does it require some scan, like, you know, higher end, uh, like was it MRIs yeah, I mean, you said? The CT scans. Oh, CT, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you could get that and it won't be cheap. I mean, the other simple way to do it is you lie on your back on the floor. And if your stomach flattens when you do that, it's probably subcutaneous fat. But if you have a big paunch, even though you're lying on the floor, that is probably visceral fat. Easy enough. And then you should get on the treadmill. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you you briefly mentioned uh, uh, glycogen. Um, Again, I think it's worth uh, our listeners, what what is the breakdown of glucose, uh, glycogen, and fat in the body? And what what do they do and what is the difference between them? Sure. So when we eat um, excess energy, we have any excess nutrients that get processed. So some fat will go directly into fat and become part of fat tissue. 
other excess nutrients go to the liver where they're processed. And then there, you know, you have three different types of energy. There's glucose, which is that sugar in your blood, and we use that like cash. Think of it like cash. And every time you need something, it's right there for you. You just spend it. And then you can have chains of glucose that get stored, and they get stored in your muscle, uh, your liver, and that's kind of like a checking account. So when you need some energy, it's not exactly nearby, but you can run to an ATM and get it. And then there's when there's really excess, it gets converted into fat molecules, and that's a whole different type of molecule. And you can think of that like a, a CD, a certificate of deposit. So you're putting it away for long term, not terribly easy to get to, but if you really need extra energy, you can you can go and use your fat. And probably all three of those are used, you know, in some capacity, um, but glycogen typically is used before fat. So, um, you know, you have to dip in pretty deep into your, your reserves to really get the fat going. Mm-hmm. And you, you talk about brown fat versus white fat also. Can you explain the difference between those? Sure. So brown fat actually burns energy. So white fat stores energy. Brown fat will burn it to keep us warm. Babies have quite a bit of brown fat. It keeps them warm in their new environment. As we grow older, we get a lower proportion of brown fat. But, you know, there's a lot of research now where they're trying to inject brown fat into white fat to see if it's a good energy-burning mechanism, if they can actually get people to lose weight this way. Mm-hmm. And there is also beige fat. That's fat that's capable of turning brown upon exposure to cold or exercise. So cool. very active area of research right now. And, um, you know, sadly, you can – I tell the story of one patient, a young girl, who actually had too much brown fat, and she couldn't get enough calories her fat, her brown fat was just burning through all the calories. And, you know, she, she sadly didn't live very long, but it was a very rare case where you can actually have way too much of a good thing. And yeah, it's not you said, healthy. wasn't she like six pounds at three years old or something? That's like right. Still, that's, wow. Yeah, that's insane. That's, uh, yeah, she could never gain weight. They had her in the hospital on continuous drip, you know, thousands of calories, and she just couldn't gain weight. So I, I know this is sort of slightly off the top of the of the book, but there's been there seems to be increasing amounts of research into diet um, that seems to come up with fat being a much healthier thing to consume than sugar. And does that go back to the idea of like the the sort of checking account versus the savings account? No, I think that's what's getting into is the, the dietary fat that's being discussed quite a bit now. So, you know, there's actually new research showing that you know, saturated fat butters, things like that, um, they actually promote the healthier cholesterol, so HDL versus LDL. They actually clear out some of the LDL. And so there's there's more of a story, more of a you know, reason to perhaps go back and add fats into the diet. And so that's, you know, I guess the, the story on olive oil and butter, and there's some very good articles and books written on that right now, but certainly worth the consideration. And not just for that, I find fats to be very satiating. So if I have a salad, I, I add fats to it because it keeps me full and going for a very long time. Mm-hmm. I seem to remember, like, Arctic explorers just take with them, I think, just olive oil to chug because that's the the best calorie to weight ratio of stuff that they can take with them in terms of actually the, the amount of calories that you need to survive walking across the Arctic. <laughs> or, or I haven't the seen that. It used to be whale blubber, I thought. That was, yeah, uh, they did whale blubber, but I think the modern expeditions, like, they have, they have bottles of Canteens oil. Canteens of oil. Yeah, they just drink, they have to chug oil, because that's, if you're going to take a certain amount of weight, it's much better than having chocolate bars or sugar. Oh, too bad because I'm sure chocolate tastes much better. <laughs> I don't know. I, uh, <laughs> That's a big oil enthusiast. Yeah, I'm. I'm hoping to find a few bottles in my Christmas stocking. <laughs> so, so what is to walk across the Arctic? Yeah. Well, you know, maybe I'm. Go- I'm going to be in Colorado, so you know, at least walking across a parking lot, it's going to be chilly. Okay. You could have yeah. a shot, just one shot of oil. Yeah, just a little. 
So what are some of the, what are some of the genetic differences, uh, or how much do, does genetics contribute to individuals' uh, predisposition to put on fat or burn it well? Yeah, so I mean, genetics does have an influence, but it doesn't mean that you have to be obese. So there are certain genes that are identified. There's the FTO gene variant. Um, children who've had it, they've been studied, and you know they, they, they divide these two groups of kids into two, one that has the FTO variant, one that doesn't. And the children that have it, they tend to load up their plate with much more high-energy foods. They just have this propensity for high-calorie foods. And so when they compare the plates, they've taken on more chips, more chocolate, and not surprisingly, they have more fat. Uh, FTO variant also creates more fat cells, so that's something you know, that happens. Uh, you know, you just it, your body's more predisposed to create fat. And then there's other there's other gene variations too. There's um, you know overall there's collections of genes. So I give the story of the Pima Indians in my book, where uh, they came through the Bering Straits about 30,000 years ago, came into America. One group settled in um, Phoenix area. Another one went to Macoba, Mexico, and. Uh, group in Phoenix, they started adopting more of a Caucasian diet with time, and they started gaining a lot of weight. Uh, I think the men had 10 times more obesity, the women about three or four times more, and, and a very high, higher rate of di- diabetes than the Caucasians eating the same diet in that vicinity. And then they, they compared this group, research compared this group to the, the Pimas in Mexico, who retained their lifestyle. So they still farmed, they still rode bikes, they still had all natural foods, not processed American foods, and they stayed thinner. They were much thinner than uh, the Macoba over in, in Phoenix. And so, you know, what that's, that's sort of, it's like there's a genotype. You could have a collection of genes that the way you respond to your environment might be diffo- different for a group of people versus another. Mm-hmm. And it really depends on, you know, the, the history of that group of people. I mean, Pimas had had famine, you know, a couple times a century, and so that was part of their they're kind of Darwinian DNA at that point. They were designed to keep fat on. And so depending on you know, your family, depending on your, your lineage, you could have a body that's a little bit more predisposed to fat. And of course, it doesn't mean you have to be obese, but you'll have to be more careful than somebody else who you know, can eat whatever they want. And I always give the example, my husband is someone who can eat whatever he wants. He's white, he's Irish, Italian, he eats ice cream every day, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> He's fit into the same genes, you know, since college, and that's not something I would ever dream of doing. And so, you know, all kinds of differences there. He's male, um, you know, different different race, and he has a whole different set of genes than I do, and they interact with the environment differently. Yeah, and and when it comes to the gender difference, um, do you think a lot of the a lot of it is based on just the body preparing for the possibility of pregnancy, or is that just one factor of the, that gender difference, or okay. yeah, so you know, girl babies—they have more fat than boys. So from the time we're born, girls have more fat than boys do. And they studied this with newborns, and they—they're not even—they think it probably even exists before we're born that, that girls have more fat than boys do. And at puberty, girls will gain much more fat than boys will, who are also going through puberty. And so fat in women, it just seems to be, you know, nature wants women to have some fat. It's not surprising, I suppose. We have to, you know, give birth. We have to nurse. We have to do all of these things. And women's fat actually keeps them a little bit healthier than men's fat, as we talked about. We tend to store more things, clear our blood out of, the, you know, out of fats and store it in our fat tissue. And so, you know, this, I think like lifelong you know, women will, will overall have more fat than men. And part of it's nutrient partitioning, too, and that's something I write about in The Secret Life of Fat. Women just partition more nutrients into fat. So say you, you eat something for 100 calories, 
and men will take maybe 10, 20 cal- of those calories to put in the fat. Women will take more of those, maybe 30 calories, and put that in the fat. So just, you know, ounce for ounce of what we eat, women are metabolizing food differently, and we're also interacting with their fat differently. Mm-hmm. Also, um, you sort of mentioned pregnancy briefly there. The the body's relationship with fat changes during pregnancy, right? Yes, um, that's right. So, no, that's a very interesting little piece of research I put in there. It's actually our microbiome changes during pregnancy. So the bacteria that we have in our gut, they actually help us digest food. Some bacteria will extract more calories out of food, some bacteria less. And depending on your composition, you might be getting more or less calories out of your food. And what they find is that women in the first trimester, they took their, their bacteria from the gut and they put it into mice. Um, and then they, they took women from the third part of trimester preg- uh, pregnancy and put that bacteria into mice. And mice gained weight from the women when they had the, the bacteria from the third trimester um, inserted into them. And so that, it shows you that how you know, our, our microbiome changes were designed to gain some some weight with pregnancy and for all kinds of reasons well this is something that on a fairly regular basis we get more we get stories keep coming in about more and more research into gut bacteria the gut flora and how how it affects a remarkable and ever-increasing number of things that scientists science is aware of um this seems to be a fairly new and fairly recent branch of investigation um so Gut bacteria really has a seems to have a very big effect on how your body processes and deals with fat. Well, we're more bacteria than we are human, um, which is really astounding some, to some people. I think it's by a ten to one ratio. We have more bacterial cells than human cells in our own body, and so they're symbiotic with us, and they're helping us process and digest and do things. So it's not too surprised they would have an effect on how we are. And I agree. There's there's things you know research now looking at um, you know the gut brain access and how that's changing the gut bacteria that we have and how it affects our thinking, even depression, um, certainly on skin, you know, eczema, atopic dermatitis, people are looking at the bacteria on our skin and how that's affecting um, our skin health. And so it's all over the place. We are not alone when it comes to our health. So uh, one of the things you write about in the book, they, um, they transferred gut bacteria from obese mice to thin mice and the thin mice right. started to gain weight, right? Well, they had germ-free mice, so these are mice that are raised without any bacteria at all, and they are a great experimental model to see what happens when you put bacteria into them. And so when they put bacteria, um, you know, from even, even yeah, obese mice, and, and they put them into the, the germ-free mice, they start to gain weight, even though their metabolism is, is higher once they have bacteria. But even more interesting, they took human twins, one thin, one heavy, and they took uh, my, uh, the microbiota from the, the twins, one, you know, each, each type, the heavy and thin, and put them into different mice. And the mice that get the uh, bacteria from the heavier twin will start to gain more weight than the other mice that gets it from the normal weight twin. And so there's, there's certainly something in, in that story of the, the bacteria we have in our gut. The good news is that it's not static. It's the, you, you can change your microbiome. So the more fats and carbs we eat, we get a certain kind of microbiome that's really good at extracting out calories. The more fibrous food we eat, we give our bacteria a run for the money. It's really hard to digest. More of it will go out as waste. And that, that's what you want to do. You want to change your diet so that you're building bacteria that aren't harvesting anything, that are healthy, that are more diverse um, than if you're eating just a you know, single high-fat diet. And so, and good news is it doesn't have to be that way. You can change your microbiome. So have they done any experiments of actually sort of tracking down health 
actually implanting healthy gut bacteria into less healthy people? Well, I know the C. difficile experiments where people who have that terrible gut disease, they have done that. They've done fecal transplants, which right. sounds awful. We've just got, that has, has come up on the show more than once. Yeah. yeah, it has worked, and it has helped those people develop a healthy microbiome in their gut. And so they, I, don't, I haven't seen studies where they've done that in people for obesity, but certainly for you know something as, as serious as C. difficile, I've seen that. Hey, this episode has a sponsor. And it's a sponsor that's saved me on holiday shopping. We have a magical secret shipped to us, responsible adult holidays. <laughs> yes, we get a box every every quarter that comes from uh, our good friends over at Vsauce, a gr- very uh, educational and entertaining... Not just any box, a, a curiosity box. Curiosity box. Did I not mention the actual name of the box? Oh, jeez. Yeah, so we get a curiosity box once a quarter um, coming... Cur- cur- coming courtesy of Vsauce, uh, a great YouTube network of, of science shows. And actually, uh, I just watched the latest video that Michael Stevens put up on Vsauce, and it relates directly to one of the one of the toys with, contained within the Curiosity Box that we got. He explains in some detail the science. Well, we might as well tell you, there's a gyroscope there's in the box. There's a gyroscope in the one that we got, among many of the other cool science goodies. And uh, the latest Vsauce episode is about uh, the science of spinning. You should go to youtube.com slash Vsauce and check that out. You can also see an unboxing video of the most recent Curiosity Box. Uh, and it has all sorts of things. It has sort of sciencey toys in it and gadgets and gizmos. It also has clothing. There's a t-shirt in there that's like, I opened it up, oh, uh, that saved me buying a new cool print t-shirt. Yeah, yeah. So again, this is the Curiosity Box by Vsauce, and uh, it's great if you are a fan of our podcast. You're probably a fan of of science and tech, geeky toys and gear, uh, or it's a great gift for a loved one who is of the same mind. Yeah, um, some of the stuff in this box is definitely some of this. Some of this has been stolen by my girlfriend to give to a friend's kid. <laughs> but I mean, it's but not I've just managed, for kids. Yeah, no. But uh, I've I've managed to hold on to some of the stuff myself. Like I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah I don't think he needs that one. Yeah, yeah. We definitely keep it. I think I think he probably he wouldn't enjoy that one. So that's staying here. Uh, so, so yeah, if you get the curiosity box, you can you can parcel it up, regift some of it, keep it for yourself, or just get greedy and keep it all. And uh, one of the great things about it is a portion of the proceeds go to uh, support Alzheimer's research. If you go to curiositybox.com/slash/probably-science, you can order it. It uh, retails for around forty-five dollars plus shipping and handling, and guaranteed that each box has at least eighty-five dollars worth of value for the only forty-five dollars. And if and you use our custom link, you also get a free Vsauce beanie. That's right, eighteen-dollar value. So um, even if you've already finished your holiday shopping, it's still a fun thing to order. You can buy one-offs or you can uh, set up to have them shipped to you every quarter. Again, curiositybox.com slash probably science. Now let's get back to our talk with Dr. Sylvia Terra. If you had to, I know the book isn't speculating on this stuff too much, but like it, down the road, like some magic bullet solution to to everyone's uh, weight gain woes, would, would you guess that that might come more in the form of something that would affect our appetites or it's something in the form of like changing the, the gut biome or like what do you think the future might hold technology-wise if yeah. there is any hope for magic bullets? I mean, you know, that, that's something I do write about in our, my book is that we're all so different. I, dieting is very individual and this is one thing I did learn and answered my question to why my fat is stubborn. 
So, you know, a lot of diets, they are designed by people who are fit, they're bodybuilders or trainers. I don't think they've ever had the problem I have. And so what they say works, it works for them. It doesn't necessarily work for everyone, depending on your genetics that you come with, depending on the microbiome you're starting with, depending on your gender, depending on your age and hormones. You know, as, as we age, our fat-busting hormones decline, you know, pretty significantly. But depending on the biological profile, you're going to have different needs and, and different, you know, requirement for weight loss than somebody who's, say, you know, 25 and, you know, has their full range of hormones still and has, a, you know, different genetics. So you have to do a diet that works for your biology. And it's not even just biology. You also have to have a diet that works for you psychologically. I mean, there's some things that I don't really want to live without. I like chocolate, and I have to find a way to be able to eat it, mm-hmm. um, you know, and stay on a diet. So psychologically, there's something you need or something you refuse to eat. That has to come into play. Um, and third, the diet has to work for you and your social life, your lifestyle. So there's a number of diets out there that require multitudes of ingredients, another 150 ingredients you're not supposed to eat, lots of meal prep, lots of timing. I can't be on a diet like that. I won't last on a diet like that. Yeah, yeah. So I'd love to say there's one size fits all, but it's just not the case. So, you know, every time you buy a diet book, you you try it out. But if it's not working, that's when you have to really start to understand your fat, why you might be different, and how to make that diet or any diet or even make your own diet, make it work for you. And hopefully that's what the secret life of fat does. It really educates people about fat, how it acts, how resilient it is, and all the different ways we get fat that you might not be thinking about. Yeah, it did that. It's so much great information. And I also love the history of, of research, including like the, the OB and DB mice. I didn't I hadn't heard about that before. Can you talk a little about that? Like the those those mice that were uh, predisposed to be was it OB that were the first ones that were developed that uh yeah, so it was OB, and they had a mutation in which um, it, they didn't make leptin. So, you know, as I said, fat is not just fat. It's actually an endocrine organ, and one of the key hormones it makes is leptin. And these mice didn't have leptin. Now, leptin is directly linked to appetite. So when we don't have leptin, we want to eat constantly. We don't think we're satiated. Additionally, our metabolism goes down. So these poor mice, right, they were deficient in leptin, and they just kept eating. They, they could not stop eating. And it was Jeffrey Friedman at Rockefeller University who did an awful lot of uh, experimentation on this. And he's the one who discovered this. None of this was known. No one knew why they couldn't stop eating. But um, And it was Doug Coleman, actually, at, at Jackson Laboratory that did some of the early studies where he, he connected mice together. So he took one of these OB-deficient mice that couldn't stop eating, and he connected it to a normal weight mouse. And interestingly... Like the bloodstream the was weight, connected? Or how, how does that work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess he attached the skin you know, together so that the bloodstream could get could get um, exchanged between the two mice. Like a sort of human centipede kind of thing? <laughs> oh, it's pretty terrible, I know. <laughs> but, but it did help us elucidate leptin, so that was the good part. Uh-huh. But anyway, the, the, the one fat mouse never stopped eating, but the normal weight mouse starved, didn't have any interest in food to the point that it died of starvation. And that's when you realize there's something in the OB, um, you know, mutated mice's blood that's actually stopping it from recognizing that it's full. But it's not stopping the normal mice from recognizing that it's full, and it thinks it's full all the time because of this substance. And so that was that was very interesting. Hmm. But but the upshot of all of it was is that this is when they realized, you know, really profoundly that fat is not just sitting there. It has this hormone it's making, and the hormone has these profound effects. And I also talk about a girl, Layla, in the book, who she was also leptin deficient, and she could never stop eating. She, from the time she was a baby to the time she was eight, she was obese, and people thought she was just going to die of complications of obesity until this work at Rockefeller University on the OB mice you know, showed that there's actually this hormone, and it actually stops these mice from, from overeating. 
And they were able to get, you know, a version of that and give it to this girl, Layla, and miraculously, she stopped eating so much. So, you know, this doesn't really work in people who are normal weight. It's only if you're seriously leptin deficient. And and Layla did have a genetic mutation where she didn't make leptin. So when they were able to give it to her, she was able to go back and have a normal life. So really remarkable recovery. And if that's something that someone, I mean, that's, if you have that, is it sort of all or nothing? Like you would definitely know there's no in-between where that therapy might work for you. Like if you're wondering, I'm more of weight than I want to be, should I see if I might have this leptin-based genetic change or is that unlikely? You would know from the, you you know, know. your parents would know from the time you were born that you can't stop eating. In fact, I give another story of a, a girl named Christina. She had lipodystrophy and it's a genetic disease where your body stops making fat. You know, in a number of depots, and she was also leptin deficient, and it happened you know after uh, her teenage years and her early teenage years, and she went from being normal to not being able to stop eating, and it wasn't even things that tasted good. She would you know try to break into cabinets and and to, you know lock freezers and things like that to just get any food she possibly could. So it's a almost like a you know just intense urge to eat, and you definitely know the difference between just you know, wanting to eat something and actually being leptin deficient. So she now, just constantly feels extraordinarily hungry. In a, you know, a, a crazy way, like, you know, like she says, like Layla would, they would lock, her parents would lock the cabinets and, and freezers so that they could try to stop her eating, and she would break in and eat something, even like raw frozen fish. So oh, it's God. not even that it, it tastes good, it's not even that you want, it's just like you cannot stop eating. Right, because um, in her body's you know, but, mind, she's starving, effectively. That's right. It's not registering that it actually has enough calories in its fat. So you can think of leptin as an inventory register. It's telling you how much fat you have and that you're overall satiated. That doesn't mean if you have fat, you'll never be hungry because our glucose levels go up and down. And of course, we get, you know, ghrelin response. But like overall, if you don't have it, you know, enough of it, if you're seriously deficient, you're kind of overall hungry. Even if you eat, you feel hungry. So it has a different effect on satiation. Um, one thing I will add, though, is when people diet, and I, I touched on this already, so, you know, when you lose fat, you lose leptin. And that's when people tend to be overall less satiated. So even after they eat, they still feel like they're more hungry than they did before they ever lost weight. And so there is some ex- experimentation now of putting leptin back or giving more leptin to those people who are dieting. And they do find it increases their satiation and makes it a little easier for them to stay on a diet. Interesting. Yeah. Is there a good way to start if you're someone who's not very active and you want to start being active, but you're worried about that immediate increase in appetite? Is there a way to like, is it about easing into an exercise regimen or sort of leptin based therapies? What can you do to make it more effective? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, one thing you should do is to not exercise too much up front because exercise, like I said, it also increases ghrelin levels, which is another hormone that causes hunger. And so you can get a hunger spike if you do that. It's best to ease into a diet. You know, start with your meal. 80% of, of dieting really is about food. So, you know, start off building your habits. And, you know, when I tell people about the best way to go about this, I just use this acronym of, you know, FAT. It's, it's the food you eat. It's the activity that you do. And it's training your brain to stay on that regimen. You need all three of those things. So that's the so, training you know, seems to be the sort of key one because everyone knows – Everyone knows deep down, no matter what sort of everyone get, people get into fads, but deep down you all know that the if you do want to lose weight, you need to eat less and you need to exercise more. But the training bit seems to be the sort of the key bit. 
That's right. And so, you know, there's, there's ways to, to eat, you know, in certain ways too. So a lot is talked about insulin and insulin clearing out your blood and, and depositing fat into your subcutaneous tissue. And it does make you have your insulin's a great hormone to manage. And a lot of diet books, you know, the low carb diet books are all about insulin. But there's other hormones as well. You know, growth hormone and testosterone are two really good fat burners and they, they decline with age. So not eating also helps a lot. Intermittent fasting has helped me a great deal. So growth hormone peaks at night. And if you extend the overnight fat, a uh, fast rather, you actually prolong the the release of growth hormone, and so you get more fat burning out of it. And it's not that easy to do because you have to stay hungry for longer. Like I'll stop eating at three or four o'clock, you know, until the next morning. But it actually works really well. And then exercise also promotes the release of growth hormone and testosterone, and so you get benefits there. But but then again, I think you're right. So staying on a diet, even if your diet, you know, told you to eat cake three times a day it would take willpower to stay on that diet because sometimes you want something else. You want a donut or you want something else. Right. So you have to, you know, you still have to train your brain to be on this. And there's a lot of good research, and I cover that in, in the chapters in The Secret Life of Fat about willpower and why you really have to get, you know, you have to build it up like a muscle, willpower, and you can, and people do. There's one study of dieters where they have them hold lemon lollipops in their mouth and they do these fMRI, uh, take fMRI images of the brain. And they compare that to people who are normal weight or even obese but are not dieting. They're not successful dieters. And what they find is that in the people who are really successful dieters, meaning they've taken off 30 pounds and kept it off for a few years, their their sensory um, response is pretty strong. Like the reward areas of the brain, they really light up when they get the lollipop. But the other part of the brain that, that lights up pretty significantly is restraint areas. So even though they really enjoy food, and probably it's because they're leptin deficient somewhat, they have very strong control on, on whether they're going to eat or not. And so that's really what makes them be successful dieters versus those who are normal weight, you know, not, not really, you know, watching their weight, or people who are obese who, you know, clearly are not watching, watching what they eat enough. And you can build up that self-control muscle by doing smaller um, exertions and just building up from there. Like they find people who can try to control their swearing or try to control their posture, they're better at solving bigger problems later that involve physical discomfort. And then I give a number of other exercises in the book that talk about how to build up the self-control muscle. Um, so before before we wrap up, what um, what future areas of research are you most interested in or most excited in, or where 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 do you think the science is going? I think it'd be great if there were some way to develop leptin replacement for dieters. Because if we are leptin deficient when we're losing weight, then having that you know exogenous leptin come in and help you know d- help treat that ongoing hunger and that lower metabolism, that's going to help people stay on diets that they're on. You know, another thing as I, I've said is that I think treating obesity it's it's a group effort, and I think a lot of doctors and weight coaches they they it's more like okay you're obese you need to lose weight go on a diet and come back in three months and see me. But it's almost like diabetes. We don't tell diabetics, we'll eat less sugar and then come and see me. I mean, it's a very much of a team event. You know, right. you have people monitoring them. You have, you know, a lot of people on their medical team, and they see them very frequently. And I think with obesity, it has to be the same. And I've, I spoke to a number of different doctors that have very successful programs, and they see their patients every week at first. They make sure they're logging their food. They make sure they're exercising. They're coaching them along. And just having that kind of authority figure kind of hold their hand and go through it, it's actually quite powerful. 
And as the person gets more successful, they'll see them less frequently. It'll go to you know every two weeks or monthly, then every couple of months until they really have a handle on it. And they find that dieters who are able to keep weight off, you know, for a year or two, they're much more successful at long-term weight loss. And again, it's the habits. It's just making it, you know, ingrained and making it part of you know, training your brain to stay on this. But that kind of coaching with with a physician actually can, can help quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Right. The book is called The Secret Life of Fat, The Science Behind the Body's Least Understood Organ and What It Means for You by Sylvia Tara, PhD. Sylvia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Fun to be here. Yeah, that was great. We really appreciate it. So that was Sylvia Tara, PhD. We will put links to both the book and also her Twitter and Facebook, which are all... um at Sylvia Tara PhD and Facebook slash Sylvia Tara PhD. Check those out. The book comes out on December 27th. Uh, you can pre-order it now. If you happen to be using Amazon, why not use our Amazon shopping link? Uh, hopefully you've been using it for all of your Amazon-based Christmas shopping and or holiday shopping and or secular just happens to be around late December shopping. Your um, seasonal guardian sweater shopping. I already <laughs> forgot the name of our character. God, that's, I can't stay on brand for shit. We gotta like copyright this stuff and we gotta mail it to ourselves. Oh then, yeah, yeah. That's uh. So anyhow, yes, visit thesecretlifeoffat.com for information on the book or just go to our Amazon link and look up Sylvia Terra and or The Secret Life of Fat. Do you, do you want to know my money-making scheme? What's your money-making scheme? Well, I found out that you can actually steam up envelopes and then steam open envelopes and then reseal them and it doesn't look opened right so like so find people that are i'm gonna copy. post myself like i've got i've got an envelope that i posted myself oh, okay. that already back in the day and i'm gonna open it and then just write google on a piece of paper and put it inside <laughs> and it was postmarked 1991 i mean like yeah yeah like way before far far before i think you've got i think you've got a solid money-making scheme in these uncertain financial times we're entering so um Check it out, because next week's probably science is going to be coming to you from a castle <laughs> that I would have bought with cash. No no down payment, just straight up cash buy. We're talking uh, about glucose, not, not glycogen or, or fat here. We're talking, right? Yeah, straight up. Yeah. Straight in. Nice linking back to Thank the topics you. we discussed. Yeah. A little fat biology call back there. Hey, um, hey listeners, uh, this, will, this will probably, we might be able to squeeze one in before... New Year, what's, we're back from our respective Christmas traveling. But this might be the last one of 2016. So, thank you, listeners. Yeah, it's been a great year uh, in, terms of, in terms of new audience. Um, and we really appreciate you guys giving us a chance. And uh, new listeners, feel free to go, go to probablyscience.com if you haven't already. And, and all of our back episodes back to, um, five, it'll be five years ago come January, are up there. And... Um, and if you're listening and you haven't yet written a review in iTunes, we appreciate that. If you could, even if you don't listen through iTunes, if you do review there, it helps increase our visibility there, and we appreciate that. And everyone who's written in over the past year with stories for us to cover, I'm sorry we haven't been able to get to all of them because you've sent us so many amazing things. Um, and also our scientist listeners who've sent in corrections and information to the wildly wrong things that we've <laughs> occasionally spewed out on this show. So thank you, all of you. Uh, Thank you, the listeners with absolutely zero science backgrounds who seem to believe that we have some kind of knowledge or ability in this subject. We thank you too. So take care. Have a great rest of the year. Have a great 2017. Yeah, we'll see you guys shortly. And go to curiositybucks.com slash probablyscience. Science.